the book of Proverbs uh, to receive uh, practical wisdom that God has given to us through this book, uh, and also to, to think about how this book uh, affects our life and who uh, we are in Christ. Last week, our, our focus was preparing for difficulty. We often, we use the example of turbulence on a plane. We often experience various amounts of turbulence within our life. Things that come in that we didn't expect that try to throw us off of the path or make us feel uncomfortable. And the focus was to, to be prepared for those moments of turbulence and discomfort. We use the passage that we should guard our heart for from our heart flows everything. Everything in our life flows from the heart that God has created inside us. This week, we maybe take that a step further. If we've been taking time to guard our heart, how will that affect the words we use and what we say? How will that affect our times where we are in conflict with people. This research is a little old, it's about, I think, 10 or 12 years old, uh, but it says 85% of employees experience conflict. This is a study that was done uh, in Europe as well as North and South America. In America alone, there were 36% of people that spent time throughout their week managing conflict in the workplace. 36% of people said they did that. And on average, those people and others who are in conflict spend about three hours deciphering, thinking through, deciding what they're going to say, deciding how they should respond, rather than being productive in their jobs. The study went on to say that that was the equivalent of $360 billion a year that people spend in the workplace thinking about conflict rather than thinking about their job or productivity. Conflict, it's something that's experienced outside of the workplace too. Has anyone ever experienced any conflict before? I would assume there would be more hands. Maybe you raised your hand in your head. That's fine. The thing about conflict, though, is that conflict often brings out the worst of us. It often brings out maybe a side that is different from what we normally act like. You know, the book of Proverbs, it talks about wisdom in two ways. You, know, you have wisdom that is of the righteous person, and then the opposite, the contrast to that is foolishness. You have wisdom on one side, and you have foolishness on the other. And you could almost say that in our lives, we have this mix of wisdom in one hand, and this also this mix of foolishness in our lives as well. Uh, author and pastor Chuck DeGroat, he wrote a book called The Toughest People to Love. And he describes this tension between wisdom and foolishness. He says this, most people might think you're a pretty decent person. And you probably are. Whew, good. 
That's until you're triggered by a comment your spouse makes or an injustice at work or an issue that irks you. Out comes the fury or bitterness or cynicism. Perhaps a friend gets the brunt of it or children are in your warpath. Still worse, when challenged, you make excuses. You play it down. You blame others. Chuck describes people that show wisdom at certain points in their life. They're, they're a good person, and people probably would say that you're a good person, but he also describes the foolishness when, when something happens that throws us off of our normal way of operating and pushes us into something that we would say is foolish. You know, we see that all throughout life. There's the gifted person who rises up the corporate ladder, continuing to, to move up in the company, and yet somehow she becomes like a robot in conflict, and she represses and ignores all her feelings and looks at conflict just objectively with, with no ability to empathize with someone she's in conflict with. Then there's the people who tirelessly give of themselves, people who volunteer all the time at the local food bank or other nonprofits, but when faced with conflict, somehow they seem to always respond with these visceral emotions, immediately doubling down on behavior, justifying their own actions, and, and being unwilling to acknowledge any hurt that they've had in the conflict. Tension of wisdom and foolishness. Stay-at-home dads or moms, they tenderly care for their children. And yet, when it comes to, to conflict, they maybe take that a step further because they always seek to keep the peace. But that's kind of foolish in conflict because they avoid all types of conflict with family, with friends, with coworkers, or anyone else they meet with. And it all just begins bubbling up under the surface until you get to one of those breakdowns, blow-ups that we talked about last week. You have people with a perfect self-image. People, you know, they can quote scripture with ease, you could say, but, but they have a difficulty in conflict too. They, they somehow always ignore aspects of the conflict that disappoint themselves. They, they don't bring those things up because they didn't want to be someone who's a complainer. It's not that they want to be like Jesus. They just don't want to ruin their perfect self-image. As we consider this tension between wisdom and foolishness, maybe we could we could hear some of those things and some of the ways that we respond to conflict and identify them, identify with them even. As we consider wisdom and foolishness, you could grab one of the Bibles in front of you. Maybe you got your own. If you grab one of those black Bibles, it's going to be on page 522. We're going to head to Proverbs chapter 15, starting at verse 1. Uh, students, third graders and up, if you got your Bible, it'll be on page 770. 
I'll be reading from New International Version uh, this morning. Starting at verse 1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise adorns knowledge, but the mouth of the fool gushes folly. The eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. The soothing tongue is like a tree of life, but a perverse tongue crushes the spirit. That's where we're going to end our reading this morning. Last week, we said we guard our heart because everything we do flows from it. Everything we do flows from it. Everything that comes out of our mouth flows directly from the heart. And what fills the heart will fill our mouths. What fills our heart will fill our mouths. We see the contrast of wisdom and folly here in this passage. If we look at verse 1, we see that wisdom is the gentle answer that turns away wrath. But folly is that harsh word. Folly is the harsh word that, that stirs up anger. It's that heart that's filled with the bitterness from the past. It's the heart that is, is agitated within and angry within. It's the heart that seeks their own glory, and it's what's in that heart that then spews forth through the mouth. But the other way is the heart is the heart that's wise is one that has gentleness. The one who is, is using words to diffuse situations, not to create them. The heart that is wise uses words to, to settle everyone down, to get people at ease in, in, a, in a way that allows one another to, or people to listen to one another, to hear one another, to, to guide in new and different ways. We're going to look at a brief example uh, from the Gospel of John where we see two different ways, perhaps one of wisdom and one of folly. It's on uh, John 8, verses 4 through 7, we're going to focus on it. But the Pharisees meet Jesus. Jesus has a, a bunch of people that are gathered around him. And, and the Pharisees don't like that he's... He's teaching all these people, and so they're going to bring him an issue that he needs to deal with in a, in a way that they can try to trap them. So they bring to Jesus this woman who was caught in the act of adultery, and, and they say, and they say this, they say, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery in the law of Moses uh, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap. It says, in order to have a basis for accusing him, the one who's angry at heart uses their words harshly to devise something, to devise anger amongst a group of people. 
But Jesus bent down and he starts writing on the ground. When they kept questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. This passage, the Pharisees are trying to stir up Anger, using these words, this situation as a a trap. It was a a trap for two things. A trap to, to incite people against Jesus. Because if Jesus doesn't say stone the woman, well then he surely doesn't believe the law and we shouldn't follow him and maybe we need to kick him out and get rid of him incite anger against Jesus, but the people also were looking, the Pharisees were looking to incite perhaps anger towards the woman, the woman who was caught in adultery, stirring anger amidst the crowd that says, yeah, the law of Moses says we should stone her, let's pick up some rocks and let us throw them. They wanted to to use their words in a, in a harsh way against two people, stirring up anger to, to really destroy the lives of two individuals. Proverbs 15, 1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The Pharisees' harsh word perhaps came from their heart. Their desire to trap two people came from their desire to keep their image as the people in power, to keep, keep the power that they had over all the people in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. Jesus to them was someone who was threatening, and so they moved to an area of self-preservation where they were looking out for themselves. We see self-preservation elsewhere in Scripture. If we would journey together back into the third chapter of Genesis, we would, we would hear the story, and, and maybe you remember it, where this serpent came to Eve, and Adam was there right with her, and and. and convinced her that eating of the fruit of the, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a good idea, that she would gain something from that. And then when the Lord came later on, after Adam and Eve both ate of the fruit, he tried to find them, and, and when he did, he asked, did you, did you eat of the tree that I commanded you not to eat of? And Adam steps into self-preservation mode, and he says, well, yeah, but the woman that you gave with me, she's the one. She gave it to me, and I ate it. And then Eve, she steps into self-preservation mode. Well, yeah, but it was the serpent who deceived me. We see that in the history, and maybe it's our our default nature before we have a relationship with Christ, that we will often step into that self-preservation mode. That mode where we'll try to justify our own actions. Those opportunities where we, we don't want to take what someone has to say, but, you know, yeah, I didn't, uh, well, the only reason I did that was 
list the excuses you have in your mind. People desire to preserve themselves. And you know, Jesus could too. If Jesus chose, maybe he was writing down the command and where it's found of Moses that you should stone a woman who was caught in the act of committing adultery. Jesus could have stepped into self-preservation mode and said, yeah, let's stone her. And he could have picked up a rock and, and done that because that's what the, what the law says. What Jesus was going to say was going to affect all the people that were there, not just the, the woman, but they were going to see how this person, God with us, is now responding amidst these situations. His self-preservation could lead to the woman's death. I wonder if we ever think of our words as being that powerful. That our very words, the words we choose to speak could lead to someone's life or they could lead to someone's death. The truth is that words often cut Maybe you don't remember the exact words that were said to you, but you remember perhaps a situation in which someone said something to you that cut deep down to the core of your being. I remember I was in sixth grade. I played basketball, and I went to the first practice, and the coach made fun of me. I don't remember what he said, but my response was, I quit the team, and then I never played basketball ever again. Words cut deep and they, they alter paths in life. As a five foot seven person, I was never going to make it to the NBA. But it adjusted what I was doing at that point in time. And sometimes what happens when those words that cut deep enter our lives is that we, we actually start believing what they, what they say. We start thinking through what that person said and start believing in our very heart that they have truth to speak into our life, even though it wasn't meant for our good. In Chuck DeGroat's book that I referenced earlier, he writes of an experience. He's, he's also a licensed therapist. And in a meeting with a client, a, a Bible-quoting client, this, this guy could come up with words of Scripture like, like it was easy. He proceeded to write a sinister, demeaning letter in an email form to Chuck DeGroat and say how Chuck has failed as a therapist. And Chuck said he began wondering, is that true? Have I been failing all the other people that I've been meeting with? These words, he says, however true or untrue, have power in our life to create or manufacture truth in our life. And it took someone else coming into his life, actually reading the letter back to him, but reading it with compassion and patience in a way to quell that 
inner turmoil that he had where he saw this scathing letter of his failure as truth, but instead he could now see that the man's words were laced with folly. They were laced with self-preservation of their own life. If we headed to the book of James in the New Testament, we would we'd read that the tongue is like a fire. Earlier, James talks about the tongue being like a small rudder on a big ship. The tongue, the, the mouth has this ability like a rudder to steer our whole body. What fills our hearts fills our mouths and will determine then the, the course of our life. The tongue could be used in a, in a poor way, like a fire. A world of evil among the parts of the body, it could corrupt our whole body. It could direct our whole body in the wrong way. Hurtful words. Hurtful words, those words that we could say that can alter the, the course of someone's life, it, it doesn't necessarily just have to come from our mouth anymore. The example of Chuck DeGroat was an email that we received or that he received. How many times, how many times I have to stop myself maybe from writing an email or posting something on Facebook or social media that I don't agree with, that I dislike? How many, how many times could we say a hurtful word in an instant, and yet, whether we type it on the computer or whether we say it out of our mouth, they're going to affect someone forever, just like Jesus' words that he wrote on the ground would affect the woman forever. I wonder, too, I was out for breakfast. Some, some ladies at church, about eight of them, invite, I have a standing invitation to come and meet them for breakfast on Monday morning at 9. And, and as I was sitting there with them, we got talking about our words, and, and Ruth Dehan shared a story about how her mother, she would, at, from time to time, she would go and she would grab a chair and she would go and, and set it there and say, now Ruth, would you talk that way if the person was sitting there? Would you use the same tone? Would you use the same words if that person we were talking about was actually there in the room? Because a harsh word can stir up anger even though that person is not in the room. A harsh word it's gossip, really. In gossip, they're like, uh, Proverbs 18 says, they're like choice morsels. They, they go down to the inmost part. They go down to our heart when we gossip, when we speak of people when they're not present, right? How is it that we do that? Because even in speaking a word, a harsh word, when someone's not around, you're, you're now forming opinions about that person for other people as they go down into that person's very heart. What fills the heart will then fill the mouth. How is it then 
that we live? How was it then that, that Jesus lived? Well, we, we continue the story of Jesus and we see what Jesus did. A harsh word stirs up anger, but a gentle word, a gentle word is what Jesus used. Not demeaning the law of Moses, but saying, okay, the one who has not sinned can cast the first stone. Jesus taking these people who were heightened, ready to strike. With just one word, Jesus could have cause these people, inciting anger within them to stone this woman, and, and yet instead of inciting anger in the people, Jesus' gentle word caused people to drop their stones. His gentle word caused them to, to walk away one by one diffusing a potential conflict, saving this woman's life. Last week we talked about Ezekiel chapter 36, where it says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I think that's what we see happening in that story with Jesus and that woman. Jesus gives her new life, and I don't think it's just a new life to, to, to go on living that day or the next day that she would not be stoned, but perhaps even giving her a new heart and a new desire that she would now use her heart in a way that follows after God and, and who God is. Maybe she would use her heart and think about her words in such a way like the psalm says, may the meditations in the words of my mouth be pleasing in your sight, God. What fills our hearts is what's going to fill our mouths. And it is because of the work of Christ in our life that we too should live in a way where we have gentle words on our mouths. Instead of stirring up anger, giving comfort, disarming tension. It's those words that Proverbs 16 describes as gracious words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. You know, Jesus, in his interaction with the woman, wouldn't be the only time that he used gracious words. Even as Jesus was on the cross, he used gracious words. Gracious words that were sweet to the soul and healing to the bones, because he said, Father, forgive them, the ones who are killing me, for they know not what they're doing. And two, Jesus said, said some comforting words to us when he said it was finished. 
that our, our struggle to prove our worth based on the law, which always relied on self-preservation, was no longer something that needed to be done because it was him who lived in the way perfect for us. It was him who then gives us that new heart and that new life that we may live in ways that honor him that our heart may be filled with the joyous love and compassion of Christ, and then what fills our hearts then would would fill our mouths. So let's go from this place, filling our hearts with his words. Let us go today encouraged by those words of grace that Christ gives us, but also challenged by the following words of Paul from Ephesians chapter 4. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Because a gentle answer, it turns away wrath. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for the new heart. Not a heart of stone. Not a heart that is only focused on ourselves and self-preservation. It's not a heart that doesn't care about other people and what affects them. Instead, the the heart that you give us is a heart of compassion, a heart of gentleness, a heart of love that stems from the love that you had for us. So is our prayer, Lord, that the meditations of our heart and the words of our mouth would truly be pleasing to you, that they would be gracious words, that they would be gentle answers that turn away wrath. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.